is the unseen. And I'm your host, Mike Cleland. I am welcoming back my friend, Joshua Cutchin. I have long been wanting to talk with him again here on this show uh, since our last time together on The Unseen, which was back in October of 2019. While in this show, we both try to untangle the complex knot of overlapping paranormal weirdness. Uh, We won't offer up any answers, but we sure had a lively conversation. Now, given that both of us have focused our studies on some of the more outlying aspects of an already weird subject of research, the UFO stuff, and the owl stuff, and the fairy stuff, and the smells, and the foods, and let's throw Bigfoot in there too, and we will also throw death in this big messy soup. I can say that we are both uniquely qualified to get into exactly this kind of energized exchange. Beyond being an author, researcher, and father of twins, Joshua is also a professional tuba player. This show went a little bit long, so I won't take up too much time here at the beginning. I think it's better just to dive into our conversation. This audio interview was recorded on Tuesday, March 9th, 2021. Please enjoy. Joshua, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means so much to me. Well, Mike, uh, you know, there are some people that I have to feign an affinity for, and you are not one of them. So <laughs> I guess that's the best thing I can get I can do is like, in terms of a compliment and saying thank you. That's probably what I just should have said. But it's always an absolute pleasure to, to connect with somebody that I genuinely feel is such a kind and insightful soul as yourself. So thank you for having me. I, I relish this. And as do I, as do I. So right back at you and all that. So. Hey, for anyone listening to this, uh, I did an interview with Joshua about a year ago, a little over a year ago. That will be linked in the show notes. If you want to get up to speed on some of his work, you can listen there. He's also been interviewed by Whitley a bunch of times. You can you can go there. But for this interview here, I want to jump around to different topics. And, and you, more than anyone, are sort of the king of different topics. Just give the audience a rundown of, of the books you've done in the last, what is it, six years or so now. Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to. Um, and yeah, that's, you're right on the nose. It is six years. Um, my first book was A Trojan Feast, The Food and Drink Offerings of Aliens, Fairies, and Sasquatch, uh, looking at the uh, food and drink exchanges in um, <clears throat> paranormal encounters. The second one was The Brimstone Deceit, an in-depth examination of supernatural scents, otherworldly odors, and monstrous miasmas, which is about all the sort of different odors that we have in anomalous encounters. And then I was fortunate enough to contribute to... Uh, Robbie Graham's UFOs Reframing the Debate, which also had you on the on the uh, docket there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, David Weatherly's uh, Wood Knocks, Volume 3. Then it was Thieves in the Night, which was uh, a brief history of supernatural child abductions. And then Volumes 1 and 2 of Where the Footprints End, which both came out uh, in mid and late 2020. Uh, with that, that last two books are High Strangeness and the Bigfoot Phenomena. So. So how so just the Bigfoot phenomena? So so there's two camps in the Bigfoot phenomena. There's there's a great big hairy ape living in the woods, and somehow they've deceived every hunter, and they you know people seem to catch a glimpse of them every now and again. So that proves there's a big uh, uh, what would you call it? Um, Primate. Um, 
supposedly supposedly you know that's offered as as proof of there being a giant primate but but what about um, your book what do you, how's that what are you where are you going with that book well you know it's interesting I, oh those books I, those two books with timothy yeah, well, sorry, I should have said that. I'm very remiss uh, with my co-author, Timothy Renner. Oh, and let me just, I'll plug him too. I did a great interview with Timothy about, um, uh, also about a year ago. So, and I'll I'll link that in the show notes too, because um, I would have, you know what, honestly, like I, I love having two people talk about their books at the time. Just technically, it's a challenge sometimes as as a podcaster. So I, I, sh- I shy away from having more than one person on the show at the same time. Oh, no, I, I totally agree with that. Um, I think that three people is just about the max that you can have on a podcast. And you get four people and people start tripping over each other and, and whatnot. So I totally understand that. Um, but, yeah, you know, I think that like a lot of people who are into the UFO question, you know, you start out being a nuts and bolts UFO person. That's just the natural place to start. It's extraterrestrials coming to visit us from another planet. And similarly with Bigfoot, you start out saying, oh, it must be some sort of undiscovered hominid. A very logical place to start out. A lot of the Bigfoot evidence, the hard physical evidence, is absolutely outstanding. Um, you know, I think a lot of other paranormal disciplines have Bigfoot envy because those footprints, man, they're just absolutely magnificent if you ever get to see them. And, and have you uh, seen have, any in, in person? Like, have you gone on a Bigfoot hunt and actually been out there and seen them? I've seen a lot of casts. I've seen a lot I've of casts, too. Yeah, yeah I've seen a lot of casts. Um, I, I had two incidents that incidences that might be kind of Bigfooty, but I never have seen Bigfoot either. But um, but yeah, I mean, just the, the amount of scientific rigor that's been put into studying these casts is amazing. But then, as you get into these subjects, you start seeing that there are a lot of gaps and a lot of holes with that primary theory. Just like I would contend in the UFOs or extraterrestrials uh, camp as well. And uh, it's an interesting thing that happens, which again you can draw parallels to, to UFOs as well. Just as the person who sees, you know, a structured craft or sees lights in the sky is probably going to think that it's extraterrestrial, someone who sees Bigfoot crossing a road at night or sees Bigfoot, you know, catches a glimpse while they're out hunting, they're more likely to think that it's just some sort of undiscovered animal. But as people get in closer proximity to these events and there's more of a longitudinal experience, um, that's when the high strangeness really starts to creep in. So obviously, you know, with... uh, UFO experiencers, that's certainly the case. And if you look at people who have repeat and sometimes extended Bigfoot contact, uh, people that in the community you would call habituators, people who claim to have Bigfoot on their property, that's when you start to get a lot of these other uh, high strangeness events that sort of creep in at the margins a lot stronger than in those fleeting sightings. Yes. So the Bigfoot thing is uh, a genuine mystery. I interviewed Ron Johnson. I actually did, I think, six parts with Ron Johnson. There was no way I could just let him kind of tell part of his story. We really told all of it. And the Bigfoot stuff that he's experienced is so bizarre. And he has experiences of Bigfoot, a Sasquatch creature, actually invading his dreams with sort of a, a you know in combination with sort of a psychic premonition. Uh, yeah, and there are ties in, in Ron's story. Such a really kind fellow. Um, he, 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 we interviewed him. He was one of the two case studies that uh, Tim and I put at the end of Volume Two of Where the Footprints End. Yeah, and, and his 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 experience also has ties to uh, to the afterlife in an odd sort of way. Oh yeah, very directly, uh, very directly. Yeah. Like he basically gets a tour of heaven. And sees his parents, you know, in a, in this grand cathedral that he's escorted there. I think he actually goes on a flying saucer and 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 is taken there. In it's very very 
symbolic and and dreamlike in many ways, but the the UFO contact thing is overlapping with you know interacting with his dead parents. And, and these things should not happen in proximity to something that is just uh, a large undiscovered primate. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. There are some people out there who want to say, you know, oh, well, the UFO connection or this high strangeness connection must be a coincidence. But as Timothy has told me on numerous occasions, you know, we don't see a lot of UFOs around gorillas. <laughs> you know, we don't see a lot of high strangeness around orangutans. So that alone would make something like Bigfoot an outlier all its own. And and I argue that you know the, you know the, the the analogy is so simple, right? So people are claiming they are being taken on board a craft that, in essence, being you know magically taken on board a craft with memories altered, and they have medical exams that take place, and then they're released. That is a very simplistic view of the UFO contact experience, but that's sort of the mainstream uh, way now. You go to Yellowstone National Park, and I've talked to bear biologists who do this. They fly with a helicopter. They dart a grizzly bear with from a helicopter. They land, and you know what they do with it? Which I, they, the drug itself, it, uh, it, they can't move their muscles. They can't move. They're paralyzed, but they can still see. So they put a blindfold on the grizzly bear, which I think is just remarkable. They just say, we don't want to stress it out, so we put a blindfold on the grizzly bear <laughs> so he can't look at us while we're doing these medical exams because they're totally incapable of using their muscles, but they can still see. So, you know, they do these exams, they weigh them, they, they actually, they tattoo their gums and they put it, they actually put a um, collar on them or sometimes they'll put a staple in their ear. So they're tagging them. They have, they basically have what amounts to an implant. Mm -hmm. They get in their helicopter and they fly away. Now, when that bear comes out of its sort of missing time event, does he go to the other bears in the meadow and say like, oh my God, I have this experience. I, you know, like all of a sudden I saw this weird flying object and it landed nearby and I, and I was suddenly paralyzed and then everything got foggy. And then I, as I was coming to, I saw this strange flying object fly away. Now, does the bear have synchronicities, weird synchronicities? Does the bear like have healing abilities after that? You know, like, like, I don't think so. Yeah, and, and I would argue that the very fact that it looks like the you know encounter experience, the abduction experience, the very fact that it, it, it is reminiscent of that should be a red flag that it's not extraterrestrials. It's, it seems to me that that implies that it's a much more human phenomena. And I'm not even necessarily saying something like my labs. I'm saying like this is just sort of – this is an entire narrative that we have in our heads as a species. So what does it say that this phenomena apes that almost beat for beat, right? If it was truly an alien species, you would assume that they would have technology or methods or motives that are so foreign to us that we can't even comprehend of them. Well, the bear can't comprehend how the helicopter works. Sure, yeah. And so here's the funny little aspect of this. So, so all the – like this is like – this is all twinkly and rainbow and glowy, happy unicorns, what I'm about to say here. If you'd use the analogy of the the bear biologist in the role of the visiting alien. So I've talked to these bear biologists, and you know what you find out very quickly when you have a conversation with them? They love the bears. They love the grizzly bears. They care deeply about the grizzly bears. So when I heard that, it was like, wow, that if you're going to anthropomorphize something— that one key fact adds an extra depth to how the to how the analogy plays out. You know, I think about this a good deal because 
I don't want to say that all these experiences are positive or all negative. Um, and I think that, you know, if, if it is indeed extraterrestrials that we're dealing with that are, uh, you know, abducting us, we, we're sentient enough to at least give consent. <laughs> right. So, um, I wrestle with that, but at the same time, you know, dogs can't give consent to go to the vet, even though it's in their best interest. So I, I don't know if something's operating at that level or not. I know that, um, you know, I'm enough of a contrarian when people say that most of these experiences tend to be positive. I want to push back. And then when people say most of them tend to be negative, I want to push back as well. Oh, oh, I do too. Oh, I'm, I'm totally like that. Yeah. That whatever anyone says, that's just in my bones. I can't help it. So. Yeah, and and I, what it leaves me in is is a place where, um, I just I tend to just really still remain agnostic about about the motives that we can even possibly comprehend what these motives are anyway. I think is probably a little bit of a a pie in the sky wish, but but we go there. I go there all the time. I speculate all the time and and try to do my best guesswork. And and you know that I was being purposely kind of uh, provocative about the bear biologists loving the bears. Uh, I mean, it just struck me very, very much how that cleanly overlays a certain population within the uh, experiencer uh, population. Oh, it certainly does. I would like to. I would like to ask um, how many bears happen to see dead bears when they're taken, <laughs> or bears, like you said, bears having synchronicities. Yeah, yeah. I'm. Yeah, like yeah. Or doing Reiki. That's why. <laughs> Now, now you, you, you bring up the Reiki thing, and this is something that I have thought about a great deal because I think you're the first person uh, whom I can't remember you were interviewing, but it came up about the idea of there being perhaps a shaman quotia for the universe. And I do think that you have to – you really do have to acknowledge the strong similarities between the contact experience and shamanic initiations, near-death experiences, et cetera. Um, and one of the things that you've pointed to is you know the number of UFO uh, – experiencers who have gone on to do Reiki. Um, but I, I wonder, I mean, would you say it's a, it's, it's obviously not a majority or even a plurality of, of, uh, of experiencers. And, and I wonder how many, so if, if the shaman, if the shamanic initiation narrative is, is kind of what's happening with, with the, you know, contact experience, um, why aren't we seeing more shamans coming out of it? <laughs> and and I don't know if that's I don't know if that's me not looking at it in the right way, or if that's people not realizing that that's what their calling is, or if people are sort of being uh, shamans in their own you know day to day lives at a at a smaller level, interpersonal level, um, who are who are these experiencers? But that's something I wonder. Is it's like well, okay, you, you take that sh- you take that shamanic initiation comparison up until the abduction experience. Then after that, you don't have the sort of relationships that you would see, you know, in, uh, in Yakutsk, you know, (laughs) in a tribe in Yakutsk or something. Um, you don't have that sort of communal sense of helping. At least that's been my experience. Now I'm obviously not nearly as plugged into that community as you are. So I, I kind of wonder what your take would be on that. Well, I'm starting from a, you know, my foundation is like, I have a big thing on my, my, blog that says, I want to hear your owl experiences. So people are coming to me with owl experiences. So I have a 
set group of people. The people who are having owl experiences are the ones who are finding me, and I'm finding the ones who have owl experiences. So I am not objective. I am so hyper-focused. I am so subjective on these, like, the tiniest little fractal within the giant weirdness of UFO stuff. So I'm looking at the, like, at the this this corner of people who have these experiences. So I don't feel that the owl experience is universal. It's close to universal as far as the people I'm talking with. So that makes my research completely skewed. Right. There's self-selection there too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm self-selecting all over the place. Like I don't, you know, like, and they're, they're finding me just to tell me they're all stories. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, it gets nutty. Um, so within the pool of people who are having owl and UFO experiences, I would argue that a lot of them, I mean, I got a lot of people who are outright shamans. They say it. I'm a shaman. I mean, I got a lot of people. Let me say, I have a lot of people in my files, mm-hmm. a lot of reports in my files where people are like, yeah, I'm a shaman. They just say it straight up. And and then they've have, you know, these are the people who have all experiences. A lot isn't that many, but it, I mean, given that the overall percentage of shamans in America is pretty low or in the world is pretty low um, in my files, it's pretty high given that. So, and then you take a half a step back and what is the shaman-like activity? Right. So if someone's a family therapist and helping, you know, people in crisis, you know, is that a shaman? You could argue that they're using sort of shamanic like ways, you know, and it's Reiki. They're doing, you know, uh, energy healing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 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 I'm I'm cautious. And the conversation I had was with Joe Lewis, who wrote a book called The God Hypothesis. Mm, that's right. Mm-hmm. And um, and I, I interviewed him for the Owl book, and he worked with Dr. John Mack when he was writing Passport to the Cosmos, which I think came out in 2001, which is 20 years ago, which hurts my brain to even say that. So, <laughs> and that, that, that book really had a huge impact on me. And that book, Dr. John Mack, compares and contrasts the shamanic initiation process with the UFO contact experience, the UFO abduction experience. And, and I mean, I was, you know, pretty new in this when I picked up that book. I was reading voraciously at the time on, on the subject of UFO contact, and that book had a huge impact on me. So it forever predisposed me to kind of like seeking out the shaman thing. And I do it all the time. I'm totally guilty of that. It, I think it's an interesting and, and sort of evergreen way to look at it, though. And and I really, the more I look into it, the more parallels I find. Again, I don't think maybe, I think maybe it might be part of a suite of different phenomena as opposed to being a one-to-one correlation. But uh, yeah, I, I, I suppose that you're right about the the uh, self-selecting thing. I just, I, I, I can't help but feel like there are people who are experiencing this and are either rejecting the call or are completely unaware that it is a call, I guess. Okay. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that, but those people are still having the experiences and there's this thing that question on the questionnaire is like, it's on every questionnaire that goes out to UFO abductees. It's like, do you have a sense of mission? And oftentimes people say, Oh, I have such a sense of mission, but I don't know what it is. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Which is, which really ties into, you know, that sort of dream logic and that sort of, uh, you know, post psychedelic trip trying to remember something, you know, I can't tell you the number of times I've been like, man, that was a crazy dream. I'll never forget. Wait a minute. What, what happened in that, <laughs> what happened in that dream? I've been very, I've been trying to document my dreams, which is something I've never done before. And it's like, so it's like you wake up in the middle of the night, like, wow, that was like tapping into Carl Jung's core thesis. 
I'm just going to go back to bed and I'll write this up when I get up and wake up and there's nothing. I got nothing in it. But I remember thinking it was yeah. like the most astounding dream ever. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I, I never remember them. Um, this is again, partially where, of where my head is right now with, with what I'm working on, but, uh, Oh, we can get to that. Let's get to that after the first break. Okay. I know, I know where you're going with this. So let's, I'm going to take our first break for free listeners. You will hear a few commercials for paying members. We will be right back. We are back on The Unseen, and I am talking with Joshua Cutchin, and we are talking about the weird outlying stuff that permeates these strange experiences. And we are not limiting ourselves to the UFO thing. Everything is wide open. All the doors are open. But before the break, you were about to talk about something, and I said, ooh, but I, let's, we'll get to that. But I, I have to share one thing. And I keep going back to this story. So Ray Hernandez started an organization called Free, which changed its name to, I think, the Dr. Edgar Mitchell Foundation for Experiencer Research. I think I have that right. And he's a remarkable guy. And he he sort of burst onto the scene with this, um, he's like a dynamo of energy. But he has a remarkably weird story that I love. This story, this story just solidifies so much of what I'm wrestling with in my own research. He's a lawyer in, in Miami. He's driving in Miami traffic. He's making a left turn. The radio's on, listening to a song. And he's halfway through the left turn and all of a sudden, whoosh, he's, like, he's like in some other reality. He's completely transported out of his ordinary reality and he's thrust into this weird, different place. And he describes it like seeing a Ferris wheel, like a big, giant, iron Ferris wheel. And one big arm comes along with the Ferris wheel. One of the big spokes comes along and it says, written on the side of the spoke, it says, UFO contact. And the next arm comes along and it says, out-of-body experiences. And the next one comes along, and it says lucid dreaming. And so it's just spoke after spoke after spoke, and they're all labeled, and I'll just read off the list. And this is like on his homepage. This is almost like the masthead of his organization, this list. So um, I'll just list them all off here. UFO contact, out-of-body experiences, lucid dreaming, mystical meditation, remote viewing, shamanic journeys, channeling, Spirits and Ghosts, The Near-Death Experience. And after he sees all these spokes, all of them labeled, like the camera, he says this takes like 20 minutes, and the camera, like his visionary experience, takes him into the axle, the hub of this wheel, where all these spokes are connected to the hub, the axle of the wheel, and there's a label on the axle that says human consciousness. And then whoosh, He's back in his car. He's in the middle of the left turn. The same song is playing in the radio, and he's he's like right back into real life. And he said he felt like he was gone for about twenty minutes. That's 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 fantastic. Isn't that, I mean, right? so it's like oh, great. We got the checklist, and that that scratches my itch. You know, it doesn't have Bigfoot big, or fairies in it, so I apologize. <clears throat> no, but I mean, but but it, so it doesn't. So here's here's my contention. It doesn't have Bigfoot and fairies in it, but I'm of the opinion that it's practically impossible to separate fairies from aliens. I mean, the more I dig into it, the more I keep on just finding things that sound almost identical. So if you can make that connection and you can make a, a Bigfoot alien connection, then it really does sound like we're all, you know, it's all sort of the same soup. Um, and again, you know, I, I, I like the fact that it's a, a wheel with, with spokes on a hub as opposed to one just giant circle. Um, <laughs> piping, like, is it like stirring a big soup? That would make me crazy. Right? Like an overlap Venn diagram that's just a circle. <laughs> um, 
but uh, as opposed to like a soup with a bunch of ingredients boiling away, like all turning into one big mush. Yeah, and, and I'm looking forward to the next uh, book that Ray's curating. Um, I did pick up Beyond UFOs, and it is a fantastic resource. Um, it it kind I kind of have had a moment with this project that I'm working on right now. I was kind of like, am I just rewriting this book? But I think mine probably leans on folklore a little bit more than something like Beyond UFOs uh, does. But, uh, yeah, I, I think that with that sense of these things all being interconnected, and we were talking about not being able to recall um, these, you know, missions that people are given in the contact experience, um, you know, even when they can remember them, sometimes sometimes the entities are like, oh, we can't tell you. <laughs> it's, you know, it's the real Zen Cohen sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it's the master and the student, yeah. Well, and, and and you listen to the way they describe them when they don't remember them. It sounds like you know they're vague and they're ill ill defined, but they seem to have some sort of real drive to do something. And that sounds kind of like all of our searches for the meaning of life. I mean, I kind of wonder if that's not the mission that people are given us is, is to find that meaning. But uh, yeah, you know, I I don't remember dreams. People have hard times remembering some um, some trips when they take psychedelics and. Uh, I kind of wonder sometimes if if the power of the shaman isn't the ability to retain and recall that information. If that's not their true power, you know, that they have, that they were born with, is that power of recollection, uh, where so many of the rest of us tend to falter and forget. There, there's a book by an author named Michael Harner, and he he researched shamanism, and he wrote a book called The Cave and the Cosmos. And if you read that book with your UFO investigator hat on, or let's say your UFO abduction investigator hat on, that book is a gold mine of symbology. Like the the tone and the vibe of that book reads just like like something by um like like Dr. John Mack. Yeah, I, I like doing that a lot. I like I like looking at different things and, and putting on that UFO hat. I mean I would also say something that sort of has always been in that similar ilk is uh, Walter Evans Wentz's fairy faith in Celtic countries. I mean, if you take out the word fairy and through that whole thing and think of it, you know, as a UFO, as a UFO researcher or investigator, um, there are so many things that you'll find that really do have this one-to-one correlation. And, uh, you know, I, I, as I've said before, I'm not sure if it's the same thing or if, or if the Venn diagrams overlap, but man, they overlap a bunch. That's for sure. It's a very, very, uh, it's a, it's a Venn diagram that has a lot in common with itself. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, it's a big pot of soup. Yeah, the Venn diagrams overlap so much that they let the. It's like, what are you looking at? It gets messy to try to to try to untangle it all. Well, yeah, it, it it renders writing about it sometimes. I feel almost impossible because there is this circular logic to trying to explain something where you. You know, you end up talking about the near-death experience and someone's dismembered in their near-death experience. You've got to talk about why that's important to shamanism, but shamanism also connects to, you know, the abduction experience. It, it just, it, it, you end up with a circular logic of if, you know, if you, where do you start if you're going to, to walk everybody through these different, like uh, the analogy, it, it, there's a wheel and each of these things flows to and from the other one. Or like a spider web, as Timothy often says. Or a tapestry, Yeah. Yeah. And so there's there's so much cross pollination that just the very act of trying to organize these thoughts uh, coherently or cogently is is such an incredible challenge. Well, if it, you have taken on what might be the grandest challenge of all, and and just what's let's <laughs> you, you've been public about the book you're working yeah. on. What's what's yeah. going on with your research? 
Um, so I, I've looked at my books in the past in a couple of different ways. And part of me has thought that I, I have two methods for what I write about. One of them is, is, you know, finding that one sentence that appears in every book, but no one ever really fleshes out or that one paragraph that, that shows up. So, you know, Oh, well, that's what I did with the owl stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, Oh, everybody talks about this, but they all, they don't really allot any time to, to talk about it in any substantive detail. And, you know, there's a lot to be mined from that. But the other thing that I do like to do is to really sort of challenge my own beliefs and my own thoughts on these things. And I think that probably thieves in the night was the first time that I did that because I said to myself, well, you know, how do we reconcile if, if, if the fairy alien thing is, um, is so congruous that you can find examples of one or the other, then how do I explain the hybrid program in fairy terms? You know, how do I explain changelings in UFO terms and really challenging my belief system um, and forcing myself to wrestle with something that I thought was a little bit uh, more complex than I wanted to. That's kind of what I'm doing with this next one too. Um, I'm sort of challenging myself to, to take a harder look at some of the, even more spiritual aspects of the experience because I have whether consciously or not shied away a little bit from, uh, the connections to the afterlife and reincarnation. And, um, because it was just, I didn't really know how to, <laughs> how to approach it at all. But when I don't know how to approach something, I like to challenge myself and say, okay, let's, let's have an opinion on this, Josh, you know, don't just go through it and try to avoid it. Um, so between that and the, you know, that thing that has stuck in my head ever since I first heard it, where Anne told Whitley, um, this has something to do with what we call death. I've wanted to write sort of the death book. And the problem with that is that not only is it an incredibly rich topic that is actually really hard to pick out key search terms for, because there are so many euphemisms oh, for death. Oh my word. Um, but it also sort of has evolved into Josh's current thinking on the the theory of everything. And because, you know, I, I'm not just talking about the abduction experience. I'm talking about burial mounds and ley lines and the shamanic experience and fairies. And there's even a compelling argument to be made that there's a cryptozoological section in there. Um, there's a lot more to do with <laughs> Nessie and death than I thought there were. Um, and then trying to bring it all together. And I'm sitting on an outline that's, about 270 pages long. The outline is 270 pages <laughs> yeah, long. The outline is 270 oh, pages yeah, long. Like, um, so I don't know. It may be, I mean, you know, it may be the size, it may be the size of Ray's book. You know? <laughs> um, or I may have to end up splitting it up, but, uh, but there really is, um, I, I've been astonished and sort of humbled by how much, death runs through all these different topics and not necessarily in a bad way. Cause you know, I talk to people, I talk to my parents about it and they're like, what are your, your next book on? I'm like, uh, death and death and the paranormal. I'm like, Oh, that sounds macabre. <laughs> I'm like, no, it's not really. It's, you know, I mean, there's some darker aspects to it, but uh, a lot of really positive themes keep on coming back. You know, the idea of uh, dying to death in the sense that people who, you know, underwent the Eleusinian mysteries in ancient Greece would, you know, die to death in terms of getting that sense of immortality, that sense of ego death that comes with psychedelics and whatnot. That's a recurring theme. And a lot of it, you know, there's so many consistencies um, that you can really track uh, that sort of hopefulness across all these different paranormal topics. And, um, Saying it's death is probably not 
as accurate as it could be. It's really just about sort of soul craft in the paranormal because, you know, it's not just about death, but it's about ancestors. It's about ideas of having multiple souls um, and also about this concept, which I think is a really rich, rich place to look, the idea of uh, psychopomps and how they uh, correspond to a lot of the things in the paranormal. Um, in his book about flying saucers, Jung said that he had not run across anyone who talked about UFOs as a type of, you know, Charon, like the the Greek ferryman of the dead. He said, I've never really run across that in any research. And I'm like, oh, well, let's <laughs> let's take a look at that. And uh, there's a lot of comparisons that you can make to a lot of these classical psychopomp figures, these guides of souls that mark the transition into the other world that you can find in fairy lore, UFO lore, um, all these different places. I mean, shamans themselves are often psychopomps. It's one of their chief duties is to escort the souls of the dead to the afterlife. And here's something that Ann Streber, you just quoted Ann Streber a little bit ago, um, and this stuck with me too, and I really pay attention to this. Uh, Ann Streber said that to become a shaman, you have to have had the near-death experience. Basically, you have to have crossed over into that other realm. So when you do your shamanic work, you already have a path to follow. Yes, that seems to hold true. Sometimes it's more simulated than than literal. You know, you'll have different initiation rites that are people being buried and exhumed, buried alive and exhumed, and then that's their initiation into shamanhood. But, uh, you know, sometimes you'll have these rites of... Uh, of passage or these rites of pain for shamans that will sort of induce these euphoric um, out of body states. Basically, they're basically trying to recreate the near death experience without actually putting someone's life at jeopardy. But also, you know, the near death experience is generated by environmental factors like illness. Um, you know, there, there's there's a there's not a really one size fits all, but they do all generally talk about that idea of uh, of jumping in the lake of the <laughs> jumping in the lake of the paranormal. You know, shamans. Uh, we are all walking beside the lake of the paranormal. Sometimes we get splashed. Um, shamans jump in and uh, they have a squirt gun, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and, and I think I think that some, some experiencers jump in and get out and they don't have a towel and they keep on getting splashed throughout the rest of their lives. But, uh, but you know, I think that, that if you look at the other world in terms of something like that, it's, it's kind of a, a nifty little metaphor. Um, but, yeah, uh, I think that there's also something to be said for, and, and Whitley's written about this extensively. Because, I mean, if you're going to talk about UFOs and death, I mean, Whitley, I would comfortably say, has written about that topic more than anybody else on the planet. Sure, um, yeah. In, in such a profound and thoughtful way, too. So he's, there's a, there's, a, there's Whitley gets his own section in the book, for sure. <clears throat> but um, oh, the same could be said of owls too. I'm just going to interrupt. The same could be said of owls too. He's like written so thoughtfully and so succinctly about owls, like you know, like uh, like the stuff he said in you know, like if you put all the stuff he said about owls in um, from um, oh, what's the second book after communion? Transformation. And I went through and I I looked at everything he wrote about owls in those two books, and it it probably would be uh, could be summed up in like one you know, eight and a half by 11 written page, 400 words he wrote about owls. And that, that one page essentially sums up the entirety of my, you know, thousand page trilogy. But there's something to be said for expanding a, upon a, an idea, giving it some breadth. Oh yes, I agree. I agree. But like he's, he's capable of, <laughs> of, of expressing himself beautifully. Yeah. 
Well, I envy you because he has written about death in every single book and has uh, has an evolving evolving uh, perception on it. So I just was like, how do I how do I incorporate all this? Because some of his early ideas I don't think are entirely bad, and you know, I, I can even though he's moved on from them, I think they're worth consideration. So I'm just like, you know what? We're just going to do a chronological survey literature review of all of his books in the middle of my book. So, um, but uh, in addition to that sort of idea of of the the shaman dipping into the other world through um a near-death experience or so or something um tr- i think trauma and dissociation are a very are very important factors and whitley in a new world said he sort of interpreted this as children having their quote-unquote expectations shattered um and i don't know if that's it so much as trauma uh, into these dissociative states which facilitate a greater awareness of consciousness or something. I mean, but the number of people that you talk to who've had some sort of profound trauma, um, who are experiencers, it's, it's, it's gotta be up there. It's pretty, it's pretty high up there. I know Kenneth ring found similar stuff. Oh yeah. That book is remarkable for that. Hey, let me, let me break in. Let's take our second and final break for free listeners. You will hear a few commercials for paying members. We will be right back. We are back on The Unseen, and I'm here with my guest, Joshua Cutchen, and we are talking about the outlying weirdness that surrounds this miasma of disparate, separate, although overlapping phenomena. And I do not envy you. You are you have come up against a monumental subject. You are working on a book about death. Just before the break, you said the word trauma. This is something um, Suzanne Gordon, who is a near-death experiencer herself and also a near-death experiencer researcher, she used a term that I that I I loved. It made so much sense to me, and other people have used it too. The term is the trauma of enlightenment. Have you heard that before? I have not, and I'm very thankful that you're bringing it to my attention. That's for sure. Okay, so someone who's had a near-death experience, who's who's died gone to the other realm and come back, they are suffering from something very similar to the person who has been taken on board a UFO, subjected to some other uh, aspect of reality, and then are brought back. The, the trauma of enlightenment. And with that comes all the things that Kenneth Ring listed in in his excellent book, which is also about 20 years old now. Yeah, and, and I think that this whole idea of trauma or dissociation <clears throat> is a good example of what we were talking about earlier with the web. Like, if you're writing a book like I am, where, where do you introduce that concept? Do you do it before the, the UFO abductions section? Because that happens a lot with that. Do you do it in the shamanic section? Do you do it, you know, with the uh, near-death experience section? Because obviously near-death experiences are, are the result of traumatic events, you know. Um I kind of wonder if if death isn't at the center of that that wheel that we we're talking about. If it, if death isn't the hub, um, I mean, it's. I think about the two things that the paranormal is obsessed with, and it's you know death and sex. <laughs> yeah, yeah they, that's like it's, it's like a, that's that's um uh, uh, Jim Morrison from the Doors. That was what he was obsessed with too. So. <laughs> Yeah, and it's and, and you know and you know that is it's it's a wheel. It's the wheel of existence. You know, it's it's the reincarnation wheel of existence. Sex and death. Sex and death. Which might speak to something of as you know the saucer as a symbol in and of itself. Uh, but uh, yeah, I I don't know why. 
because I don't want people to misconstrue that trauma is a requisite for these experiences. I mean, that's certainly not the case, but I do think there's something, uh, that, so something about that gives you a predisposition to access these other areas of consciousness. And, you know, when you bring that into thinking about some of the stuff that might've happened with MK ultra and children, you know, it, it kind of makes you wonder if, uh, if there, if one of the reasons we haven't had any greater breakthroughs in the paranormal is because to get to quote unquote, I don't want to say breed, but to quote unquote, um, build someone who is really uh, in touch with that part of the world is just unethical on the face of it. You know? Well, I know a lot of people who work as, um, psychics or mediums and they're talking with the dead and, from where I'm sitting, like that's a reality. I, I feel strongly that people can do that and can interact with the dead. It's, you know, it's imperfect, right? So the 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 medium is filtering the the information. So these realms can be accessed. Well, yeah, yeah. So the 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 method is imperfect, and you also I think it was Swedenborg who talked about uh, spirits being unreliable narrators to begin with. <laughs> so you know, you've not only got uh, you've only not only got not only do you have a uh, a walkie-talkie that doesn't work half the time. You've got somebody on the other end who may or may not be who they're saying they are. Um, so, yeah. It's, but it's, but it's, oftentimes, it's, if someone wants to talk to their parents, that's a very common thing. Someone wants to communicate with their parents. I mean, Leslie Keen is doing that beautiful documentary series that's on right now that's based on her book. Um, and it's a very forceful, powerful show where where people feel like they're having these amazing – and often the, the experiences are symbolic. There's an amazing set of footage where someone – and I have this – in one of my books, several times, people are confronted with a red cardinal after death. It's plus the owl thing is it's literally the totem animal of death in many cultures. Well, and, and the depiction of birds as the soul or messengers from the afterlife from the other world is pretty darn close to a universal trope. Oh, yeah. The, the baptism of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, <clears throat> but you know, as far as I don't want to say this to diminish people's experiences when they believe that they've contacted dead loved ones, because I do believe that genuinely happens. But I look at things like, uh, have you ever read Joe Fisher's The Siren Call of Hungry Ghosts? No. It's a, it's a pretty chilling book because it's Joe Fisher was a, a journalist who got involved in the, uh, the channeling scene of, I believe it was Canada. Um, and he basically fell in love with this spirit that was being channeled through this person. But in some of the information, she claimed to be like this ancient Greek girl who was falling in love with Joe. And there were there were soulmates. The spirit was telling him very convincing channeler who was involved um, and was coming back with some information that was completely 100 um, percent verifiable pre-Internet. So like really hard to get your hands on some of this information that, that these spirits were getting. But some of the information was wildly off at the same time, and it became uh, sort of apparent over the course of of uh, Fisher's experiences that he was dealing with something that was uh, using – was playing off emotions to get some sort of satisfaction from the experience. And it's, it's kind of a disturbing and icky um, thing to read and place to go, but I think it's important to keep in mind whenever you're getting – uh, messages from something or someone, you know, just, just because something is telling you through the Ouija board that it's your grandmother. I think that these things, there are other things out there that have access to 
some of this information that we store in the mental cloud, so to speak, that can use that to, to prey upon you. Um, and I, I, I say that at the risk of knowing that I kind of sound like uh, some sort of, uh, you know, evangelical burn Harry Potter books <laughs> Christian, especially being a, being a Christian myself. But um, Proceed cautiously. That's the bumper sticker that should be on every UFO researcher's bumper. Yeah, proceed cautiously. Tr- tr- trust but verify, right? <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing to, thing to read. Uh, and at the same time, again, me being a contrarian, like we were talking about earlier, um, at the same time, I really had to push against people who take a really cynical look of seeing dead loved ones and abductions. You know, they'll say, oh, that wasn't really a dead loved one. That was the aliens with a screen memory of the dead loved one. They're trying to manipulate you. And well, that's, well, and th- that may be the case in some reports. Very, yeah. Yeah. So that I, the, um, David Jacobs, he says it very straight that all dead relatives seen in the context of an abduction experience, those are screen memories. Um, I'm not in a position to argue that, but I I have a much more nuanced, much richer view of the entire UFO contact experience. So I would feel that 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 may be the case in some of them, but certainly not all. I would I would agree with your your take a hundred percent. I I mean, of course, that fits with with Jacobs's. Um, worldview, which even though it does the very non-materialist thing of accepting telepathy as, as a real thing, which you can't really have a materialist, physicalist paradigm with telepathy in it. That's a story for another day. Um, he is, he is by and large, um, something of a, of a materialist when it comes to these sort of things. Um, but that, at least in the way that I, agreed. Yeah. Itself. Sorry. Yeah. Um, agreed. Oh, sorry. We're walking. We're, we're, there's only two of us on this show and we're walking all over each other. So. <laughs> I know, um, right. Well, uh, so, that's, but, that's what you get when but, you have a meeting of the Mutual Admiration Society. Yeah. So. <laughs> so do we throw out all of David Jacobs' research? Just do we put it in the garbage can and light the garbage can on fire? No, I think there's a, I think there's a lot of bias in there. Um, oh, I agree. I, 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 yeah, so I'm, I was being purposely kind of – I was trying to egg you on. But yeah, that's I, – I, I wouldn't – I don't think we should do that. So we, he's, he was – I might edit this part out. But um, I spoke with him. He was very dismissive of my – owl research saying all owls are screen memories. I'm like, Ooh, I got a lot of stuff that, that doesn't fit that. So, well, it's, it's, it's the same thing that you run into. So I've, I've many thoughts on this. Um, it's the same thing that you run into with, with a lot of people who are forcing down the Bigfoot as a monkey, uh, paradigm is that they'll say, believe witnesses. Oh my gosh, I can't believe the scientific establishment is ignoring these witnesses. Holy cow, look at this. This is an important topic. Believe these witnesses. Oh, wait, you said something that doesn't adhere to my personal view of the topic? Let's just leave that outside. That's crazy. That's, you know, that's coincidence. The telepathy between the Bigfoot and the and the, the witness is not uncommon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's it's like, you know, you can believe people up until it conflicts with your pet theory and then you, then they're kooks. Okay. Well, that's, that's just to me is, is the height of intellectual dishonesty in any of these fields. But I think more importantly and more to the point, unless you are a direct experiencer and I cannot, um, I can't refute any of the truths that you know as an experiencer, right? But unless you are a direct experiencer, if you're just someone like me who is interested intensely in this stuff and you, uh, and you haven't really had any profound experiences that where you feel like you have some sort of gnosis about it. I think it's really important to take David Jacobs and say, well, here's a data set. That's interesting. And to take John Mack and say, here's a data set. That's interesting. And to really be agnostic enough to not believe either's interpretation 
but to really find common ground to stand on on the similarities that that you find um and to you know to say I, i guess i say that to say this i find value in the research of people who have theories that i would never ever ever ascribe to because it's not for me it's not the um it's not even the veracity of any single account that I find really compelling. It's the consistency of these accounts that people have across space, across time. And across phenomena, too. That doesn't even, like, you know, the Bigfoot people have the same experiences that the UFO people and the fairy people have the same experiences that the near-death experiencers have. Yeah, it's it's a mess, yeah. Yeah, but people without an interest in any of these subjects, you know, will have a one-off Bigfoot encounter and talk about something that you would, you know, the mind speak that they might have maybe, um, in that encounter will exactly parrot something that someone has heard in, you know, one of their, uh, apocalyptic visions that they were given during an abduction. Uh, and, and, and the fact that these things should have that level of correlation is, is what I find really argues in favor of there being an objective reality to this. So, you know, if you can find those big, broad strokes, it doesn't matter if any individual case is true or if someone was lying or someone was mistaken. It's it's the gestalt of all of it that I think really, really compels me at the end of the day. And that gets right into things like, you know, uh, Colin Andrews, where he says that the hoaxers, the people who are hoaxing the, the crop circles in the fields of Wiltshire, they are having paranormal experiences too. And the, the crop circles themselves are are loaded unintentionally with symbolic and archetypal imagery. I agree a hundred percent. This is also real uh, George P. Hansen sort of territory. Um, the idea that you can fake it till you make it with some of these phenomena. And I, just, I had somebody push back and be like, I hate that Josh said that saying that people <laughs> fake. That's, that's not what I mean. It means, it means that there's something about tapping into that. There's something about tapping into the imaginal, where if you approach from either direction, earnestly or or dishonestly, sometimes you can achieve that same space where belief is suspended. You know, it's it's like just finding different ways to attack and to interface. I mean, the the thing that I keep on coming back to is the Philip experiment. Which you're, are you familiar with the Philip experiment? I think so. Can you go ahead and is the ghost thing? Yeah, yeah. So for people who don't know, um, I believe it was those pesky Canadians again, if memory serves. Um, Put together, <laughs> I love you Canadians. I do too. Um, I love Canadians. Put together, that's, but that's easy. So. Everyone <laughs> um, loves Canadians. I just, it just, it's the second time we've talked about uh, Canadians in the past like two minutes. So I thought I'd point it out. Um, uh, Cy researchers who decided to make up a backstory for a ghost whole cloth, right? And uh, they came up with a fictional boy and they gave him an entire fictional backstory that he was. Um, alive during the English civil war and he had spied for the, for the crown and all this stuff. And, uh, after a couple of unsuccessful attempts, they made contact with the spirit that they had, you know, I think the the table levitated and they got raps and knocks and a bunch of some light phenomena, just usual seancey kind of stuff. And, uh, the questions that they asked were all in the affirmative that this was Philip that they were talking to and answered in the affirmative for all of their questions, you know, were you in the English civil war wrapped twice or something like that? So they essentially were able to make a ghost whole cloth, which brings up a lot of questions and a reading of the paranormal that I am not a fan of, but one that I have to acknowledge as a possibility, which is the fact that a lot of the stuff is self-generated is mentally generated. 
Well, that takes us right back to Ray Hernandez's model of the giant Ferris wheel. When you, you zoom in on the, the hub, the axle that connects it all together, and it's labeled human consciousness. A hundred percent. And that's, that's sort of, um, that's, that's sort of what I was getting to when I said like the fact that we can find an analog for the abduction experience with the grizzly bear abduction speaks to the fact of it not being extraterrestrial. That's sort of what I was getting at in the sense that it's a narrative that we have extrapolated to a hierarchy that's one higher than us. And the thing, the, the thing common to both those narratives, the one that we actually enact and the one that we believe in terms of the way the extraterrestrials are interfacing with us, the one, the, the, the same story that we sort of believe that they're perpetuating on us, the common thing in both those scenarios is, is humanity is human consciousness. Um, which is why, you know, which is why I think that the paranormal is kind of a birthright in a lot of the ways that Terrence McKenna would talk about the psychedelic experience as sort of being like a birthright, like sex, um, which again comes down to the fact that, you know, <laughs> the two things that everyone will experience on this planet, every single person will experience on this planet are birth and death guaranteed. Is this stuff contagious? Uh, Ren Collier. Have you talked to, have you talked to Ren? Yet? Never. No, I don't even, never heard his name. I would love to be a fly on the wall for that conversation. Um, <clears throat> Ren Collier is a good friend of mine, part of the Where Did the Road Go Brain Trust. Um, and he has often speculated that, uh, the paranormal could be something of a mimetic virus. Now, I, I can't really expound upon this in the same ways that, Ren could, but if we're talking about something like my lake metaphor earlier with the shamans, it seems like that's kind of, kind of getting at the same idea that, you know, just like water is wet and getting on you, the idea that from one person to the other, you can sort of pass this along. And I think about, I believe if memory serves, people who visited Whitley's cabin uh, came away with odd experiences. Um, you know, it's, it's not uncommon for people in the presence of alleged gurus or holy men to experience, you know, anomalies on their own, almost like there's a field around them, which sort of uh, goes into this, uh, this contagion metaphor. And, you know, to say nothing of the fact that, you know, it would appear that sometimes these uh, doors of perception are opened by near death experiences or, you know, UFO abductions. I mean, there's, you know, in working on this book, it's it's a real chicken and the egg scenario. You know, half the people say, oh, I had my UFO abductions and later I had a near-death experience. And the other half will say, oh, I had a near-death experience and later I had a, I had a, you know, a, a UFO abduction or a UFO encounter. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 I'm not sure. I think it's an interesting idea to play with um, because it sort of also ties into the sort of Valean ideas of control systems and the idea that some of these things are released into our populace to sort of change the collective unconscious, the collective cultural landscape. You know, you think about the way that <laughs> we were talking about COVID before all this, um, you know, the way that COVID has these lasting effects on the body. Um, you know, I kind of wonder if the paranormal isn't doing the same thing. It runs, it runs its course through a culture, you know, sometimes in waves, right? So the chupacabras were big in the, <laughs> back in the nineties and, uh, you know, Bigfoot's big right now, um, but it runs its, it runs its way through the culture and leaves a lasting impact on it. And I kind of wonder if that isn't part of the mechanism that we see at play from time to time. It's this, we have to struggle with this. Yeah. Like where, like I use the term, the myth maker all the time. Like I see this stuff as an evolving myth, right? So you have a culture like, uh, 
um, you have a culture in the East, like India, where, you know, much of their time is spent meditating and focusing on these deities and these gods, and consequently, this rich, rich pantheon of of gods and goddesses and struggles arises out of that. And in the, you know, Roman and Greek mythologies, there's these rich, complex myths with parables. And these same things are showing up in the UFO lore in a way, like the 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 war for our souls or the 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 competing factions between the reptilians and the Pleiades. I mean, this, I'm not saying it's true. I'm not saying that the Roman mythology is true. I'm saying that there is a, a myth emerging now, real time. We're watching it happen. And, and with that myth uh, comes almost like a religious zeal, like a new, like uh, Diana Pasolka would argue that we're seeing the rise of a new religion. Yeah, I was about to say I was I first wanted to attribute it to Kripal, but I think it was Diana that that. Uh, oh, they they know each other well. They could give give them fifty. Yeah, 50, yeah. So, give them so yeah, which which who said what first? Yeah, I mean, and and religions by by their very nature are are contagious, right? And I say that as you know, practicing again, practicing Christian myself. Um, religions are are contagions. They spread from person to person. They spread through populations. They change and and affect the population, which you know gets back to. You know, people throw a lot of shade at the ancient aliens community, and trust me, I get it 100%. But um, at the core of it, I, I really do think that the idea is always, you know, were these were these gods actually aliens? They keep on making all these these points, and I always think that they're making really good points in the other direction. <laughs> you know, the aliens are, are these gods. Um, you know, to what that term gods means, I mean, you know, your guess is really as good as mine. Um, because I've had some conversations with some people lately where they've asked me like, why don't you think it's, why don't you think it's aliens behind the UFO thing? And I really think that, uh, there's just, there, there could be technology that, um, would allow us to communicate telepathically. There could be technology that generates synchronicities in the lives of, of experiencers, there could be technology um, or something that, that allows you to talk to dead loved ones. I mean, I think there's a good good uh, example of that is what Whitley's been talking about with his implant possibly being uh, made by Constantine Raldi from Beyond the Grave. Cool idea. But at the end of the day, all these things, telepathy, synchronicities, um, and dead loved ones reappearing really point to the fact that that physicalist, materialist paradigm that I mentioned earlier when we were talking about Jacob's, is untrue and i've had arguments with people about this about no you know you can have a materialist paradigm and all these you know extrasensory phenomena psi phenomena etc can exist and the truth of the matter is that that's a very small minority of people who believe that i can cite several different scientific philosophers who really feel that the existence of any one of these things would falsify that paradigm so if physicalism slash materialism is not true, then why are we still adhering to this idea of, of you know, little green men and, and nuts and bolts spacecraft? Well, we're not. I mean, collectively, we're not. I mean, you know, like you know, people are materialists all day at work and then they, they go and and take communion on Sunday. They perform a, a sacred ritual that is all about the non-materialism of, of our reality. Well, true, but like, but, but culturally, I think we're firmly ensconced in that materialist uh, uh, paradigm. Uh, 
Yeah, but that's our job to like smash that up. Or like that's a, that's our, I mean that's like basically saying like oh you know like only the only music is you know classical music and then well there's punk rock too like you know people <laughs> yeah, so yeah yeah we're we're the punk rockers of reality I guess how how about that I mean that's what I'm yeah that's to a degree yeah <laughs> so yes we're trying to we're trying to smash the paradigm I'm I, I'm not I, so I don't care like I I just I'm trying to write the books that I would want to read in in my own sense so I'm not trying to change the world in that sense but I feel like like I didn't expect to write a book that like challenged reality itself. That's what got John Mack into trouble. But, you know, he said it, I'm going to paraphrase him poorly, but he said, you know, like someone at Harvard took John Mack aside and kind of sat him down and gave him a stern talking and said, like, if you had just said it's a new form of mental illness, we would all have been okay. But you went and said there's a new form of reality that we haven't discovered yet. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting you bring up the mental illness thing. And this is this is a, a drum that I like to bang from time to time is that, I mean, even mental illnesses, we're wading into the waters of non-materiality, non-physicality, right? Because if you look at, I would say, probably three-quarters of the stuff that's in the DSM, um, you're looking at stuff that is – we're only knowing what the experience is. We're only knowing what the syndrome is from anecdotal accounts, right? We can see that, oh, their brain waves aren't functioning like you know a neurotypical person's would – but we don't know that, you know, there's this one specific syndrome that makes everybody think that their, you know, their husband has been replaced by a pod person, you know. We only know that because of their anecdotal account. We can see the brainwave, but we can't see the, the reality that that is what has put their mind into this state of being. Which I think really reinforces the fact that, you know, personal experience, anecdotal accounts, really at the end of the day when the rubber meets the road, other <laughs> other cliches as well is is really what matters is is perception our individual perception because there's only so much that we can measure and uh perception really is is to a certain degree uh reality it's just a matter of how much of a consensus there is yeah yeah um josh i want to do something which i've done before i'm just going to like throw out some topics at you and just just give me like a good story, like like distorted time. Do you have a good distorted time story from any of your research? Uh, well, less of a less of a thought and more of just an observation that I think we're sort of getting sort of harkens back to what we talked about earlier. I think it's really interesting that people can have entire dreams just from nodding off for a, for a second. It's interesting to see how that is reflected in terms of, again, the psychedelic experience where you'll feel like you've been out in the DMT realm for 10,000 years and it's been 15 minutes. Or, again, uh, the uh, missing time phenomena in among UFO abductees. I, I recently read somewhere where, uh, I believe it was one, in one of the encyclopedias, where Jerry Clark, whom I respect greatly, took issue with uh, Valet's um, comparison of missing time with uh, the supernatural lapses of time that you find in fairyland um, because his contention was that uh, the missing time in uh, UFO experiences was all amnesia related. But I still think that uh, I still think that you will find if you really look into the literature, that there are examples where there does seem to be some sort of actual lapse of time involved. But, and the other thing that I found with that that's interesting is that, I can say with relative confidence that any sort of anomalous lapse in time means travel to an other world. Um, this has been something that's been pretty consistent that I just now finally wrapped my head around. 
if there isn't that sort of travel, you don't get that sort of missing time component. Um, I say that because, you know, in drawing a lot of these comparisons, uh, I have not found any examples of missing time where someone sees a ghost and they have missing time. I have found examples of missing time where somebody has a time slip and they slip into what looks like, you know, an area from the past. So I'm, I'm operating under the presumption. And again, I could be completely wrong, but I think it's pretty confident to say that missing time doesn't indicate that you were standing outside the craft talking to something and, or, you know, interacting with something here and you just don't remember it. It really does imply that there was some sort of travel involved, which I kind of think about uh, the way that you said a while back that there was the implication that many uh, UFO witnesses, even if they didn't have missing time, might have been uh, abductees or experiences themselves. I think I remember you saying that a couple of years back. And I think that that perhaps using that missing time as a a yardstick might really be the the way to say, yes, we actually did have some sort of travel that was involved here, whether physical or mental. I don't know. But yeah. That the time stuff gets so weird. I mean, the, I've talked to more than one person who I would consider a UFO experiencer. And they'll tell a story where they do a long drive. And often in this drive, they'll be with someone else and they'll get into a really powerful, beautiful, like electric conversation. It's one of those like top shelf conversations. And then they'll arrive home and the f- trip should have taken five hours and it only took two. And they didn't do anything unusual. They didn't speed. They didn't, you know, there was nothing. So like that, that's not unusual in the UFO research. And here's another story that's that I love. And I just read this in a book somewhere. So I can't speak to the veracity of this story, but it's a great story. A uh, little kid, he's uh, in the Boy Scouts. He's a teenager. And um, he's camping with his other Boy Scouts. And he goes behind like in some bushes and he's going to smoke a cigarette. So he lights up a cigarette and he starts smoking the cigarette, a little rebellious kid. And this flying saucer lands and, and these beings get out and then they take him on board. And he has this whole experience that seems like it lasts for hours. And then they bring him back and then they, they he's standing at the same spot and he, he's got the cigarette and it hasn't burned down. It's still in his hand. Yeah, so, so it's it's that sort of a story, which thank you for having an example of that, because uh, I'm going to have to lean on your ear about when that was, uh, where, you, where you read that. I, I have so many, I've read so many, I'll, it's, I'll never answer that. <laughs> but I feel, I, I feel like I'm telling it accurately. I cannot speak to the, you know, if that story is true or not, but, but I've heard other stories that are similar enough that I kind of trust it. Well, and that speaks directly in opposition to that, that Jerry Clark idea, which I had mentioned earlier, um, which I think is sort of the going idea is that there's some sort of memory wipe or something, which, you know, mythologically, if you're looking at something that, you know, a comparison again, Whitley, that Whitley has drawn, um, the idea of, you know, Nepenthe, you know, the drink, the drink of forgetfulness, um, there might be something like that going on, but that idea that something has been happening in real time. Well, I mean, Ray's, Ray's example is another good example, right? Oh, I mean, yeah, yeah. you just talked about that. She's gone for 20 minutes um, and it was in the middle of a left turn in traffic. Yeah. Um, that speaks to so many to so many different things that there actually is a metaphysical component to the to the to the uh, missing time time dilation, however you want to describe it. Um, yeah, and it's it's one of those things. I know people like to talk about the time in Fairyland, but it's not just a Western European thing that you would go away for the with the fairies for seven minutes and it's been seven years. I mean, you find that in 
almost every uh, culture that has little people, even in the new world as well. Okay. Okay. I'm going to share a story with you and I just want your take on this. This has nothing to do with UFOs. This has nothing to do with fairies, but, uh, but, but it's a story that speaks to the sort of dream logic of, of these, these kinds of stories that you and I are both researching. Yes. It, it's an owl story. So, so a boy, he's 12 years old. He's living on an Indian reservation in Michigan. And, uh, it's just, it's a very small little postage stamp size thing on the map. And it's basically a neighborhood. So he's a, he's got a kite and he's got this really uh, high quality kite with a special, um, you know, the, the thing that winds the string, you know, so he can articulate the kite in flight. So he's flying this kite and there's something that's never happened to him before. There's a huge gust of wind and the kite lifts out of his hand and he loses the string and he watches the kite soar up higher into the sky and goes into the forest. And he's totally bummed out. So he gets a friend, a little kid in the neighborhood, and they go into the forest and look for the kite and they find it. They see it up in a tree. They walk to the tree. They get to the base of the tree. And at the base of the tree is an owl, and the owl is all tied up in the string. So the owl would die. The owl would have died if they didn't find the the kite. So they they get some help, and they cut they cut the string off, and they set the owl free. When he told me the story, I don't know why I asked this question. I said, "Are you a shaman?" <laughs> and he said. Yes. Now, unpack that. Like, I, I, I don't know why I said, you know, I know exactly why I said, are you a shaman? It's because of John Mack's book, where, where this mythological, archetypal uh, energy seems to surround the people who have these, that take on the role of the shaman. That's, that's why I asked. Well, no, and, and I find that, I mean, so that's part of a reason that a lot of the books that I like to write uh, end up, tending to be on the longer side is because there's there's so many things that i think really inform my interpretation of this experience that you kind of have to get out of the way and one of those things um is uh the fact that whatever this is is speaking to us in dream logic it's speaking to us in theater it's speaking to us in symbol and i don't know something about that i find i find something about that so fulfilling I do too. I do too. That's this. This is the stuff that floats my boat so much. These kind of mystical stories, and the owl seems to be like the totem for these these elusive, dream logic, mysterious, mystical experiences. <laughs> yeah, I, I I completely agree. And and there's so much. You know, I really should probably just do a Mike Clone section in in this book too about about, about, death? Owls, about owls. Yeah, because there's oh, so I got much... a lot of death stories. Yeah, I got oh, a yeah, lot oh, of yeah. death stories oh, yeah. with owls. Oh, yeah. yeah, so um, but uh, but yeah, it's 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 one of the reasons that I think Jung resonates so well with um a lot of these phenomena is because I think he really tapped into he didn't. He didn't write a full dictionary on how to interpret these things, but he kind of started – he's kind of started one, right, um, in terms of thinking in terms of symbols and stuff. Um, Jung really did define a roundabout way of speaking to these different topics by drawing in associations that uh, I think sometimes are admittedly far-fetched but do make some degree of dream logic sense. And I think that's part of the reason that – 
a lot of his interpretations do fit so well onto these phenomena. He wasn't perfect. A lot of his ideas weren't perfect. But I think he sort of gave a lot of people who are interested in these topics a, uh, a sort of primer on how to begin to think about this symbolism and this dream logic that we run into time and again. And that's, that's, I mean, uh, John Mack recognized this, that, that, you know, reality plays out metaphorically, which is, you know, dreams play out in such symbolic language. And when that transfers over to real life, uh, I guess I, I was going to say a UFO experience isn't real life, but it is right. It's, 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 it's like that liminal space, it's that liminal space between our world and that other world, which is the same thing as the transition of death, which is the same thing of the transition of the shamanic journey, which is the same thing as the transition of someone who takes ayahuasca, you know? So there's, there's this dream logic that has to be interpreted. So that story of the little boy and the kite and the string, I just, it just slays me. I don't know the literal meaning but I can feel it in my heart and soul, the symbolic meaning. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I've given some thought or a lot of thought to, you know, why is liminality so important? I mean, yeah, there's a trickster archetype, et cetera, et cetera. But why, why is this the thing around which the paranormal tends to organize? But it really does come back to, like you said, that death idea, you know, sex idea, birth idea. These are, these are, these are all times of transition um, of bringing forth, a human being from the well of souls and returning it to that well as well. And the number of uh, gods and goddesses that are, that function both as, um, as, you know, psychopomps that we mentioned earlier, guiding the souls and also as liminal deities is pretty, is pretty striking. Um, you know, the most famous of which being Hermes um, who not only was uh, the guide of, well, he's got a lot of a lot of things, but um, one of his primary roles was to escort souls of the deceased. And the other one was he was sort of the god of, of dissolved boundaries. And because, you know, gods have to be um, they have to sort of rise above the thing that they're the god of. Um, god Hermes was the god of boundaries since he was the god of dissolved boundaries. He was the god of boundaries. And. Uh, it's interesting to see you know, this image of, of Hermes holding his caduceus, you know, the, the staff with the snakes wrapped around it as sort of a wand and to look into the number of uh, fairies and aliens that have wands that they carry around. And the idea that wands might actually be some way, if you look back into, you know, uh, James Fraser's The Golden Bow as a, a means of, you know, facilitating entry into the other world as being, you know, again, psychopomp leading the band with your baton marching down the street. Um but the but when I say these things to you and they sound like kind of crazy free association, but that's exactly the place that this this interpretation of dream logic in that sort of almost Jungian way, that's sort of the 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 primrose path that it leads you down. That's the magic, yeah. That's that's the that's the magic, and that's as a like I'm not I, like, I have a tough time calling myself a researcher. Like I feel like I'm less a researcher and I'm more someone who wants to enter that magical realm that magical netherworld and just just bathe in it if that makes sense like the, like these are the stories i love and have always loved since being a little kid and i still love them now and i want to 
tap into the magic of these stories. Yeah. At the same time, I kind of have to be self-critical and wonder if that we're not just a bunch of wannabe literary critics, right? <laughs> we're wanting to find the symbolism of the different items in, in this. Well, in this so what? Yeah, what's, what, what, what's more fun than that? You know, I think I think it's so much fun. Like I just <laughs> I think it's absolutely so much fun. Um, I'm being I'm, this is this interview's gone. We're a little bit over time, and I'm a little bit slap happy right now. But this has been a ton of fun. But just for this kind of speculation and dancing around these complex subjects and trying to find the the mystical in what might otherwise be the nonsensical. Well, Mike, I feel like I drop your name in like every other podcast because you know I we I always wind up in the weeds like this, and I always end up saying. Um, that, uh, you know, I was end up quoting you rather, I guess I should say that if you're talking about these topics and you don't wind up talking about the nature of reality and God and existence and all these sort of bigger, headier topics, and you're kind of having the wrong conversation, you know, exactly. Yes. <laughs> if you end up talking about anti-gravity technology and propulsion, I guess I could not, I could, I literally could not care less. You know? <laughs> It's like, it's like, again, it's like John Mack said, have we moved beyond lights in the sky? Yeah. I just, I, that's not where the, that's not where the real show is. You know, it's not where it's not drilling down to, to brass tacks. So, and of course I'm really biased. I know there are a lot of people who will hear this and be like, you know, you guys are just up your own backsides with all this stuff, but. Well, we're having fun. Yeah. So I'm saying that in the, in, in kind of a joyous way, right? So they we're following our bliss. There's, let's get old Joseph Campbell on, on this one. So. <laughs> Yeah, we're following our bliss and we're doing it. I mean, you know, nobody's in this to make money. I'm sorry, <laughs> we're doing it for our, we're doing it we're doing it for ourselves because we're compelled. And it again comes back to that idea that you've always talked about. Uh, a friend of yours said, uh, you know, uh, you know, following UFOs, studying UFOs is a spiritual path. Um, I know. I, I got an argument with one friend of mine who meditates. He's an ardent meditator. He has a guru, and we we'd talk about spiritual stuff. And we ended up getting sometimes we'd get pretty heated, and we'd kind of snap at each other. And he'd snap at me. It's like I can't believe you don't meditate, and I would snap back at him. I can't believe you don't read UFO books. In a sense, since we were saying the same thing to each other. Oh, one hundred percent. I mean, I, I think that's what <laughs> that's sort of the that's sort of the thesis of this conversation, right? I mean that. That you re we really are talking about a lot of these same things, and uh, you know something else I've been giving some thought to recently um, is you know how I square my study of UFOs and talking about all these wild things and in, in my own faith, and I, I'm not sure I have an answer for anybody really yet, but um, I, I would argue that you know even when I'm talking about my you know, my, my religion, I'm talking about the Bible. I'm kind of talking about UFOs and aliens and stuff too. I mean, I, I because, because it's, it's all about this, this, this fundamental bedrock human experience and the symbols and the motifs that we're talking about and these visions and this interaction with the numinous, this interaction with something uh, from beyond, you know, I had a, I had a Facebook status a couple of months ago where I was like, I feel like this uh, documentary I found online about, uh, Indo-European horse sacrifice says a lot more about about the UFO experience than any discussion of of you know propulsion systems because it's about how we are interfacing with the other whatever that may be and uh, if you start looking at looking at it that way there's a lot of UFO study to be to be found all around you all the time and a lot of a lot of 
fairy studies and a lot of near-death studies and a lot of shamanic studies and a lot of dream studies and a lot of death studies. I mean, it's all, it's, yes, so the, this, we're, we're into the soup again. Yeah. I think if you're doing it right, you can't get away, away with it. And I think that if you're doing it right, uh, it ends up being messy. And I, That's I mean, okay, maybe, though. I mean, yes, you, you, as an author, you know, you're you're beholden to not, you know, confuse your reader too much. But, I mean, you can confront them with the the weirdest of the weird and, and hopefully that that they can tap into that. And and through that, through that illogic, you know, comes a sort of clarity. And I'm and I'm not saying that lightly. I'm saying that, you know, from direct experience, like the the illogic of a synchronicity, the illogic of of the tangled knot of the story of someone's UFO experiences, that illogic within that chaos is the the eye of the storm in a way. Yeah. It, it reminds me of something that, uh, Patrick Harper said, well, he was quoting CS Lewis, I suppose talking about, um, the fact that fairies by their nature were, uh, consequential because they were inconsequential. And I like the, that little sort of, uh, self-contradictory <laughs> idea, uh, in and of itself. Yeah, I talked to a fellow who he's a he. Um, this took place in the Rocky Mountains. He's hiking in the Rocky Mountains in the Wind River Range in Wyoming, and he's with some other friends and they're hiking together. And he's out ahead of them, and he realizes he has to stop, so he stops and he turns all the way around in the trail. Beautiful mountain meadow, and so he stands in the trail and makes a full three sixty, nice and slow. And when he gets back to facing forward again, there's a little. He called it a brownie, a little short brown, basically a elf or a leprechaun or a fairy. He said it was about 16 inches tall mm -hmm. and they looked at each other and he said they stared at each other for about 30 seconds. And, and he was, uh, he said he was close enough to see the stitching on its homemade clothes, little 16 inch tall person. And he said, this thing waved at him and kind of gave this expression like, you know, oops, busted, you caught me. <laughs> and he waved back and the little, the little being stepped off into the grass. And then he went up and he saw the little footprints in the sand. He says, I don't know why I did it. I, 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 I brushed those footprints away. Mm. And I said, what were you thinking about just before you saw the fairy? Excuse me, before you saw the little brownie, the sh the, that would be called the little people. That's what the native Americans in that part of the country would call it, the little people. And he said, I was just so blissful and so grateful to be in this magical place. That's beautiful. It is. Yes. And and the the people who are talking about propulsion systems don't ask the beautiful questions. <laughs> they don't ask the questions that they well they'll get a beautiful response and I'll also <laughs> say this guy has been like plagued with synchronicities. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean that, that I hadn't thought of it that way but and and, and what if and if that maybe perhaps is the the point, then you're kind of wasting your time with the other stuff. I'm not saying that it is, but if that is the point, then all the stuff about propulsion systems and anti-gravity technology and all that stuff is really a red herring. And it might be out there and it might be part of the big overlapping mystery, but it's, I'm not interested in it. I'm not an engineer. I wouldn't do me any good to like, you know, study anti-gravity. Well, the same thing with it's the same thing with uh, with disclosure. Like everybody's waiting for some sort of 
I've already Giant had disclosure. disclosure. I've had it. Yeah. Like I'm. Yeah, like, exactly. You had disclosure. <laughs> disclosure is disclosure is a is a is a personal. It's a personal thing. It doesn't come from. Doesn't come from a guy in a podium. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So maybe we'll all have our individual disclosure moments, you know, and it'll all ramp up, and and the the myth makers of reality will anoint, you know, every individual on Earth one by one with a mystical experience, and whether they can deal with it or not we'll never know but maybe that'll be the grand disclosure event well i would argue and, and i'll talk about this in greater length in the future not to be coy about it but i'm not quite ready yet but uh i had some pretty major life uh experiences happen last year and i the, the more i look back on it the more i'm like this was the year to do it you know with the, the whole world was you know the whole world was in this liminal place. It was all topsy turvy. Everything was changing, and I, I think a lot of us, I think maybe twenty uh, twenty was a chance. And who knows? I think it was probably the the vibe of a decade. But I think now this sort of unstable time is a chance for us to really reinvent ourselves. Um, I don't think there's a better time to do it. Um, certainly wasn't a better time for me to do it. And uh, yeah, I, I think that there's something in that to to sort of be on your own personal mission and to, and to use the vibe of the times around you to sort of reinforce and bolster uh, that personal change inside. That is a beautiful place to end this conversation. Joshua, I want to thank you so much for this. This has been a delight. How do people get in touch with you? JoshuaCutchin.com, J-O-S-H-U-A-C-U-T-C-H-I-N.com. Um, I'm still answering every piece of correspondence I get. Oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> but, but but the caveat is it might take it might take a couple of weeks um, because uh, I have to admit when I'm in the middle of researching and writing that's at the forefront of all my thoughts. So, um, but I will get back to everybody. And uh, there's uh, links to all my books and uh, my interviews. Should be having some news uh, coming out soon. Um, I finished a collection of essays about uh, fairies in films that I will be releasing uh, through uh, August Night Press. That's Robbie Graham. That's Robbie, my yep. my good buddy Robbie Graham over in England. Yeah. Yep. So uh, essays by myself and a lot of other people, um, not just about what you think of as fairy films, but films that you wouldn't think of as fairy films interpreted through that fairy lens. So I'm really excited about that. And that should be coming out soon nothing official yet but soon wonderful again this has been a delight i look forward to having many more conversations just like this thanks so much mike i I loved every minute of it me too bye now This is Mike chiming in after the editing. I didn't really have any idea where this interview with Joshua would go, but I am truly impressed at the depth of what we explored. And now, please let me relist Joshua's books for you. They are all highly recommended. In 2015, he published A Trojan Feast, The Food, Drink, and Offerings of Aliens, fairies, and Sasquatch. In 2016, he published The Brimstone Deceit, an in-depth examination of supernatural sense, otherworldly odors, and monstrous miasmas. 
And in 2018, he published Thieves in the Night, A Brief History of Supernatural Child Abductions. And in that, he compares and contrasts the fairy abductions of the Celtic countries as well as the modern UFO contact experience. And just last year, in 2020, he published two volumes, Volume 1 and 2, of Where the Footprints End, High Strangeness and the Bigfoot Phenomenon. And his co-author in those two remarkable books is Timothy Renner. Joshua was also a contributor to Robbie Graham's 2017 collection of essays titled UFOs Reframing the Debate. And I am also in that book. And he also worked with David Weatherly in a book titled Woodnox, Volume 3. And the focus of that series of books is Bigfoot. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.